Well, there we go. It's so good to see you all. I can see you again. Not in the dark anymore. Oh, isn't it great? It's, so, it's such an honor to be up here with you guys today. So my name is John Glowacki. I am the worship arts pastor here. And so this is a little different role that I get to be in today. It's an honor to be able to fill in for Brandon a little bit today while he's on his study break. But, um, you know, something that I love that I think is really interesting is whenever I'm, I'm out and about somewhere and I'm talking to somebody and they say, hey, John, like, what do you, what do, you do for a living? And I said, well, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, a worship pastor, like a music pastor in a church, especially so for people who are not connected with the church that don't really have the context for what my job looks like. It's really interesting because they like the, the first thing they equate it to, they say, so, so you're like the youth pastor, right? And I'm like, well, not quite. They're like, no, 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 I get it, I get it. You're like the youth pastor. You're the guy that like hangs out with the students and then like you fill in for the, the real pastor, which first of all, real pastor, uh, you fill in for the real pastor when they're, they're out on their break. And I'm like, well, that's only like kind of true only once a year. And that's today, so buckle up. I've been waiting a whole year. I've got a lot to say. Get ready. No, I'm just kidding. Kind of. <laughs> but actually, a big part of what I do here is, is related to like the creative arts ministry. So we, one thing that we believe is that, that God himself is inherently creative, and that's an attribute that he imparts onto us. Amen. He gives us amen. Thank you for that. I agree wholeheartedly. So shameless plug, if you are someone who is, is inherently creative... Um, God wants to use that, and we want to help you form that creativity. So if you're a musician or an artist or you, you're, you're creative, you like working with your hands, we would love to talk with you. And, and out in the lobby, we've got a, a Next Steps area that, that's a great first step, a great place for us to get to know you, fill out one of those belong cards, take it there, or come find me after the service. I'd, I'd love to talk to you more about that. But so we've been in this series called Retro Summer where we're taking a look at, at some of these like pop culture references and, uh, from the 80s and 90s because here's one thing that we know is, is that the stories that resonate with us the most, like the ones that we grew up with that, that mean a lot to us, the stories that resonate with us often reveal a deeper spiritual truth about reality, a deeper spiritual truth about reality. So today, because we've been talking about creative arts and all, I thought maybe... Maybe we'd go back to the Renaissance. We talk about the four brothers of the Renaissance. And maybe you know them, uh, Michelangelo, Donatello, Leonardo, and Raphael. You know these guys, right? Yes. The Ninja Turtles. Like, what, what a big part of, of, of my journey growing up, these guys. But today I want to focus especially, well, so each of these guys is like this archetype. So you've got... Donatello, he's like the brains, and Michelangelo, he's pretty aloof, and, and Leonardo, he's the leader, he's all about his, it's all about his character and everything, but, and, and Raphael is the hothead, and today I want to focus a little bit on, on Raphael, so, you know, if he, he is the, Raphael, man, he is the turtle with the temper, if he's got a motto for his life, it's, it's ready, fire, aim, right, and so, like, he, he's just not, like, the best example, so, like, if your kids come to you and say, like, man, I'm really into the Ninja Turtles, and you're like, oh, which one's your favorite? Like, like mom, dad, I want to be just like Raphael. Like, I, I'd encourage you to, like, get that kid into therapy as quick as you can. Uh, so, so, anyway, but here's the deal with Raphael. His own worst enemy, it's himself. Like, the dude just gets in his own way, doesn't he? It's like anytime there's an issue, like in, in the 1990s film, the turtles have all these problems they got to deal with, right? 
Raphael somehow makes each of them worse because he's unaware of himself. He, does, he gets in his own way. He acts without thinking. He speaks without considering others. And, and everybody can see this but him. Everybody can see this but him, right? And here's the point I'm trying to get to is that Raphael's problem is the same problem that many of us have. It's that we're, we're not only blind to our greatest flaws, but we're also blind to our greatest strengths. St. Augustine says, how can you draw close to God when you are far from your own self? He also says, grant that I may know myself, that I may know thee. So let me ask you this. How many leaders are you aware of? How many leaders do you know that have, have, have started a successful church or a business and watched it grow to enormous potential just to implode? because of a, a moral failure or, or a scandal or something like that. And they left a trail of ruin and hurt behind them, all because they grew to prominence before their character was ready. Or to bring it closer to home, how many couples do you know that before their marriage was even able to get off the ground, they, they threw in the towel because they were just unaware and unable to recognize their own inner beauty as well as their own inner brokenness, or to bring it even closer to home. How many parents do you know that just, you know, your own mom or dad maybe, that, that just missed it? They didn't know their own identity and calling, and so they were so blind to their shadow side and their own unhealth or immaturity, father wound, baggage from the past, that it just leaked unhealth onto you or your siblings or people that you know, or, or maybe that parent just didn't understand your identity or your calling and so they ended up forcing you into paths that you were never meant to follow. And it felt like a straitjacket. It was, it was suffocating. And, and the second you turned, whatever age you got out of there. The point is, our self-awareness or lack of self-awareness directly impacts our relationship to God and our relationship to others. So Pete Scazzaro, the author of the book Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, he says that the vast majority of us the vast majority of us go to, our, uh, go to our graves without knowing who we are. So it's important for us to realize that a big part of our journey isn't just discovering all, all the good stuff, all the good stuff about ourselves, but all the broken and dysfunctional parts of who we are, even if we'd rather not deal with it. And, and this is the hard part, and this is why a lot of people do not do this. It's hard because it's painful in some moments, but self-awareness is an important part of, of our spiritual formation. And so today, we're going to look at a few accounts in God's Word about uh, identity and calling to help us understand what this process looks like, what it is, what it isn't, and why it's important. So first, if you've got your Bibles with you, please turn to Matthew uh, chapter 3, verse 13. If you do not have a Bible, please feel free to, to follow along on the screen. Let's read this together. Verse 13 says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to Jordan to be baptized by John. But John deter, tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment heaven was opened. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him, and a voice from heaven that said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. This is a great story about identity, is it not? So first off, I want, uh, first of all, an important thing to help us understand this passage. The, the, son of God, the Son of God, this phrase, the Son of God, this is a moniker 
for, uh, for Israel, for, for God's people. If you read the book of Exodus, the, Israel is called the Son of God, and then later it's used as a moniker for the Messiah. So, so the Hebrew prophets and everybody would have seen this coming. And so the statement is not just about Jesus' identity, it's also about his calling. So notice that the two are joined at the hip. They're not, they're not separated. As we live in this, this cultural moment where everybody wants to talk about what you do and, and maybe your character, your character doesn't really matter all that much as long as you contribute to the bottom line or, or you're, you, you've got a lot of followers on Instagram or you're famous or you've got six-pack abs or, or whatever. But so often in the church, we have this almost overreaction to this where we say, like, man, it, it's not about what you do. It's about who you are. And so, like, you think about this terrible cliche. Have you heard this? Like, we're not... We're not just, uh, I'm sorry, we're human beings. We're not human doings. Like, I want to throw up in my mouth a little bit when I hear that. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just, because it's, it's not true. Because what you, you cannot separate your being from your doing. You can't separate what you do from who you are. In fact, we'll say this. Here's our point. What you do flows out of who you are. What you do flows out of who you are. So consider this next story, Jesus in the wilderness. The very next chapter, we see him being tempted. Verse 3 says, The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, notice he's hitting his identity. If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answers, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand at the highest point in the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command the angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Then Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put your Lord, your God, to the test. Jesus knows who he is. And notice what Jesus is not tempted by. He's not tempted by, by, by sex or drugs or alcohol or anything like that. Uh, not even necessarily to sin, per se, his temptation is to hand over his identity and his calling. That's to hand over his identity and calling. And Jesus is not the only one to face this kind of temptation. Turn over to Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Verse 13 says, When Jesus came to Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others... Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and by blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. So the name Peter, or, or Petros in Greek, literally means the rock. Um, this means that, that Peter isn't just like a, like a strong leader in the church. It also means that like he, maybe he's like the original like Dwayne Johnson, right? His name is actually The Rock. And, uh, you know, like this, this guy that just like keeps getting stronger and never like ages. Like <laughs> anyway, sorry, I'll continue on. This joke didn't land. Um, but... <laughs> But notice what's going on here. Rock or, or Petros is the same word in Hebrew as it is in Greek. So this is a play on words. Jesus is saying, essentially, I tell you that you are the rock, and on this rock I will build my church. And this is an important statement about who Peter is. 
This is a great moment for Peter. For Peter. But then later on, if you know his story, he's tempted in the same way as Jesus. And he gives into that temptation, and he abandons identity, saying, I didn't know the man. He denies Jesus. But it's important for us to see that God uses Peter's failure to form him, and it becomes pivotal in his story and his calling. He becomes much more confident in who he is and in who Jesus is, because if you know the story of Peter, you know that after this, he becomes the leader of the Twelve, and then the leader of the church in, in Jerusalem and throughout the Mediterranean, and then the early church as a whole. He becomes a leader. Because God uses our successes, Peter recognizing who Jesus is, and he uses, as well as our failures, to form our character as a foundation for our identity. He uses our successes and our failures. It's our experiences, both good and bad, that God uses to help us become aware of our strengths as well as our faults. And we need to be aware of both. And we are all called to go on this journey. So I want to give you guys some really, really, like a really practical roadmap to, to kind of help us understand what this looks like in our life. Um, there is no like automatic or mechanical part of the journey of, of identity and calling. There's nothing, there's not like a step one, step two, step three, step four per se. But here I'm going to give you, we're going to call this the seven stages of identity and calling. And these are just kind of generally some different parts of our life and, and some phases that we go through where we learn about our identity and calling. So the first one is called our sacred foundation. So this is the stuff in your life that you have little to no control over. This is your context. This is what you're born into, whether it's the, the year you were born, the culture you're born into, your family of origin. Your, your ethnicity, like these are the things in your life that affect your identity and your calling that you have no control over. You know, part of, part of what I do is I get to work with technology here a lot. This would not have been a thing at all if I was born in like 1200 AD. The, the, the time in which we're born into makes a big difference. The second stage is called discovery. And this is that messy stage um, anywhere between like elementary school through your young 20s, just generally where you're discovering who you are, the things that you're good at, the things you're not so good at. And in this stage, believe it or not, failure, the things we, we fail at, is a gift because it teaches you, hey, maybe I'm not so good at this thing over here, but man, people have really said I'm good at, at like this kind of stuff over here, so maybe I'll do a little bit more of this and a little bit less of this. And that's a, that can be a really good thing, but it's a messy process, and it takes several years for a lot of people. The third step is called stepping out. So this is the moment when you're like, man, I think I know kind of the things that I'm good at, and so it's time for me to step out into that. So this might be, you know, signing up for the internship or, or, or you know, applying to college or uh, the apprenticeship or auditioning for the part or applying for the job, whatever that is. There comes a moment where you have to step out of your comfort zone and step out and do something. Um, number four, so Malcolm Gladwell in his book uh, says that has this concept called the 10,000-hour rule. He says that it takes about 10,000 hours to become a master at, at anything that you do. So to break that down for you a little bit, if you were to spend 20 hours a week for, for a decade, for 10 years doing, doing the same thing or, or, or perfecting a craft, whether it's music or, or public speaking or, or whatever, if you were to spend 20 hours a week for 10 years, that would be 10,000 hours, and you would become pretty good at that thing, right? You think if you do something that long, but they say that it takes about 10,000 hours to master something. 
But anyway, this might be like going to college or, again, like that first, first few years of an internship where you are just perfecting and becoming good at this thing that you're already kind of good at. And so number five, I want to spend a little bit more time on this one. Number five is called hitting a wall. And this is, this is the crisis in your life. This is the crisis where you begin to question your calling and your identity. And the purpose of this, God uses this to help you resettle your calling. And this, this can be a hard thing, and we, don't, we may not just go through it once, but if, if you hang on through it, even through, through the doubt, the darkness, the confusion, the pain, you actually, this is actually part of the journey. This is an important part of the journey because God, God is going to join you, and you're going to come out of the other side of this changed or find a better person. And I can tell you personally, I've been through, I've, I've hit the wall probably two to three times in, in my journey with Jesus. And it's not something that, that I would have ever asked for. It's not something I would have ever asked for, but it's not something I would trade for the world. Because it, it helps you know what to do. And, and, I, and I still have a long way to go. Um, I know that I still have a long way to go, but in my calling, I'm less anxious, I'm less worried. I, I, feel, I feel more the person that God has called me to, to be. And, and the same can be true for you. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you're just hitting that wall. I'll share this concept with you that I found out about recently. So learning about trees in the forest. And so you think about trees in the forest. You think about the, the large trees that, that kind of reach out over the canopy. Their branches extend above other trees, and, and they're the, like the big ones that get all the, all, the, all the nutrients from the sun. And so the process by which a smaller tree grows up in the forest underneath these, these larger branches. Um, you, you would think like, man, if I was a small tree and I was not able to reach the sun super well, I'd just produce as many leaves as I could to try to get as much of the little beams of light come in between the trees as I could. But that's not actually what trees do. A young tree will spend, not years, decades strengthening its trunk, creating rings. It only creates a couple little branches, but most of its time is spent using the little bit of energy that it has to create rings and strengthen its trunk. And so for us, the application is this. God sometimes spends, not years, he spends decades helping you grow, refining you, and strengthening that core of, of who you are. And I would argue that that's our character. God strengthens our character. And this is another interesting fact about the trees. One thing that we know, too, is that sometimes when a, a more mature tree dies or falls or because of deforestation or, or whatever, sometimes these young trees are exposed to all that light a lot earlier. And so what's really interesting that happens is they, they actually, uh, so they'll, they'll sprout up a little bit quicker and they'll grow a ton of foliage. But nine times out of ten, these trees break or split or fall down because they didn't spend those decades developing their trunk. They're not strong enough to support the branches that they create. And the same can be true for us. So if you're feeling a little discouraged right now, you feel like, man, like I, I, th I thought I knew my identity and calling, but right now, man, I'm stuck in this job that I'm just not liking, and, I, and I'm, going, I'm going through the motions, but like, God, what are you doing in my life? He might be trying to work on your character. So be open to that. Stage number six is called staying faithful and fruitful. This is the longest stage of our life, and this is midlife, and these can be some of the most fruitful years of our life. And when we stay faithful to God, 
One thing that you'll notice is that our, our 20s, our, excuse me, our 30s become more fruitful than our 20s, our 40s more fruitful than our 30s, our 50s more fruitful than our 40s, and so on and so forth. You become more fruitful as you go. Psalm 92 says that you'll be like a palm tree bearing fruit in old age. And a, a palm tree is, what's interesting about a palm tree, the Bible uses it as a metaphor for how we're to be. It's the only uh, tree that produces more fruit the older it gets. And that is what we're called to do. That is what we're called to do. And then finally, ending well. So you, you think about this, ending well. There's so few people that actually do this. Pop culture, you might think of people like, like Will Smith, like, Think about the things he's done, and then think about what he's known for most prominently right now, right? The slap. Nobody else is thinking about anything when it comes to Will Smith or, or somebody like Harvey Weinstein. Like, it doesn't matter what you did before that moment. That failure is what defines your life now. Even, even people in the Bible, like King Saul or Solomon, you, you think about their life and what it's defined by, the before and the after. It doesn't matter. You, your failures become so much a part of who you are. In the end, character is destiny. You can't outrun your character for better or worse. That's why that, that strengthening of our character, of our trunk, is so important. And only, just an interesting fact too, only about 30% of the characters in the Bible actually end well. Most of them are in the New Testament. It's something that each one of us is capable of, but very few people actually do. Each one of us in this room today is capable of ending well, but very few people actually do. And then finally, just a bonus stage for you. I think this one's cool. So these are the, these are the people, this is called Afterglow. And these are the people who um, are, are like that great grandma or that great grandpa that at a family gathering, it's like everybody just wants to be around them. And they, when they speak, everybody listens. And it's slow and intentional. And, and they've got awesome stories. And they've just got so much wisdom to share. And you can't help but be around them. And, and these are the people who put like 80 plus years in, Right? And so you just get to, like, man, at this, at this stage in the journey, you just get to bask in the afterglow of a life well lived. And, and you're like this, you know, so you put in 80 years, you don't really have to do anything, you just get to sit and watch TV with your great grandkid, and, kid, and, and maybe you don't even remember his name, but it's great. It's just good <laughs> to be there with that, with that kid, and, 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 and that's what afterglow is. You just get to enjoy those last few seasons of life, but... So speaking of kids, uh, a quick side note for you, parents. I want to talk to parents in the room for just a moment. One of your jobs as a parent is to study your kids. And here's what I mean by that. It's your job to study them and to help them discover who they are meant to be, to help equip them and help, them, help show them like, what they're good at, what they're not good at, and what God might be calling them to be. You go on that journey with them. So last night, my oldest daughter, six years old, Emmeline, she is taking all of the throw blankets and stuff in her house, and she is uh, folding them like tightly, surprisingly well into these uh, really interesting like cylinders. And she's piling them in a, a basket, and she's playing, and she's like a she's selling rugs is is the what she's doing. And she at one point in the game, she takes them all and she starts like pulling them out of this basket and just throwing them everywhere. And I look at her, and she's got this smirk on her face, like, "What are you doing?" She's like, "Dad." I am going to clean this all up. Like, are you? Like, yes. And she did. And she did it again. She folded them all and organized them. And for this kid, 
It is not unusual for her in the morning to come out of her room fully dressed, and she will have made her bed and uh, cleaned her whole room. It's like, what are you? <laughs> like, this is, this is not, this doesn't come from my side of the family. This is Sarah. This is all my wife. Um, but, like, I notice these things about her. And so if she, down the road, if, if I see her entering a job where she's going to have to, um, she doesn't get to be, like, organized and, and kind of, she's going to be a very detail-oriented person. I can tell you this already. But part of my job as a parent, as she grows, is to, to, to pay attention to what she's doing and to help guide her a little bit. We live in this cultural moment where you've got, these, you've got this dizzying array of options where you could go do this or do this, and there's almost like this paralysis in, in, in young people where it's like, I could be anything, but what do I do? I don't want to make a choice. I don't want to commit to anything. And, and maybe, maybe you didn't have a mom or a dad or a mentor in the picture because of X, Y, or Z. Um, but you, you get these, these people who just wander around kind of aimless for about a decade in their 20s, and they're, they're afraid to commit to anything. They're, they're anxious. They're terrified of failure because, like, everybody on social media, like, they look so good, but in reality, like, they're just really good with their thumbs, right? It's, it's not real. It's not real. And so, parents, you you have more influence than you realize to, to affect the trajectory of your kid's life. You have more influence than you know, whether it, like intentionally or unintentionally, the things that are said or the things that are unsaid, they will affect your kids, not just your kids. They'll affect your kids, your grandkids, your great-grandkids, and so on. It's your job to, be, to help guide and, and be a roadmap for them. So today, to wrap up, a couple things that I want to, to just remind you of. It's that First of all, there, there really is not, there is no map. Maybe you're looking for, for what are the steps in the process to discover who I am? Like, how do, do I need to take the DISC assessment or the Myers-Briggs? Or what's my Enneagram? Like, like, what, like how do I figure this out? They're, those things are all helpful. I don't want to knock those things. But there is no replacement for the journey, and it looks a little bit different for everybody. So there's no map, but there's a guide, and his name is Jesus. And as a church, we can offer you a compass, some do's and don'ts, some, some good stuff for the, for the road. But more important than anything else, I would just point you to Jesus. Draw close to him. So today as we end, I want to do something just, just a little bit different. Uh, psalm 139 is this beautiful psalm just about God knowing us. He, he formed, it says he formed us in the womb. He knew us before we were born. Like he knows our comings and goings. But God knows everything about us more deeply than we do. You think about like a person that you know really well. Sometimes you know them in certain ways better than they know you. God knows us oftentimes better than we know ourselves. So today as as we're wrapping up, I just want to pray this psalm over you. Is that okay? All right. Let's (laughs) let's pray together. Lord, I ask today that you would just not just reveal identity and calling. Lord, help us to see what it looks like to be Jesus, to be you, Jesus, expressed through the personality that you've given us, for us to to model our lives after you in in such a way that we bless the community that we're in, we bless our family, we bless our friends, our, our coworkers. Help us to see who we are. Guide us and direct us. Lord, your psalm says, you've searched me. You've searched us, Lord. And you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. 
You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all of my ways, not just some of them, all of them, good and bad. Before a word is formed on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before me. You lay your hand upon me. Verse 13. You've created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, and I know that full well. Lord, today in this room, there are people who think they were an accident because their parents thought they were an accident. Lord, they are not an accident. God, they are a miracle. All life is miraculous. All life is sacred. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Lord, your eyes saw the, my unformed body. All days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I wake, I am still with you. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test my anxious thoughts. Test me. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Lord, lead us. Guide us and direct our steps today. Help us to see the path. Lord, help us learn from failures and, and grow in areas of success. Help us to, to find our place in, in, in our, our personal lives, in our, our job, and our vocation, but also how we are to serve you in this church. Lord, we love you, we thank you, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all. Have a great week.